Hello and a very warm welcome back to episode 25 of the Rugby Paper Podcast. This week, a jam-packed agenda is on the menu with the NFL previewing the Rugby Championship and the World Cup in the United States. Joining me for this one, Chris and Brendan back again, as well as current head of Europe and UK for the NFL, Brett Gosper. Chris, nice to see you again. How are you doing? Well, Ollie, how are you? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. Brendan should be joining at about 11, just after 11. So we'll get a little surprise visit at some point. And we're with former CEO of World Rugby and current head of Europe and UK for the NFL, Brett Gosper. How are you doing, Brett? Pretty good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, thanks for being with us. So you're into your second year now? Coming up closely to two years. Um, So yeah, it's gone very quickly. Does involvement in rugby feel a long way away now? It does. Um, it does seem a long way off, although keeping contact with a few colleagues over there. So uh, have a bit of a smile, want to hear what's going on. Uh, but things seem to be positive. Um, obviously, there are always uh, issues to deal with. But I think the, the, the place is being well managed by Bill and Alan in particular. And, um, uh, you know, lots of lots of activity coming out of there. It's, it's good to watch. And it's I'm enjoying watching rugby. Uh, as a normal uh, spectator for the first time in you know in about a decade where I don't sit on the edge of my seat wondering if that law is right and that referee's made the right decision and have we made the right decision in pointing that referee and what's what's the coach's emails on Monday going to be like and and uh, what are the injury rates in this game and everything else that goes through your head while you while you're watching ever rugby so I'm now just enjoying the flow of the games. <laughs> I was going to say, it must be quite nice. Obviously, we, we all work in rugby because that's a passion of ours. But if it becomes your, your, your sort of nine till five every single week, I suppose it becomes more of an occupation than a, than yeah, a pleasure it, to the same extent. Yeah, look, it doesn't put you off it in that role. You just look at things in a very different way and you're far less relaxed. But you every bit as passionate about it and you love it as, as much. It, it was never a chore to watch games of rugby. It just was a busy, it, it, it was a busier uh, experience than just simply letting the game wash over you. Look, your role is very, very different. Obviously, you're now in a league rather than you're uh, being in a governing body. But there are like natural comparisons, you know, and rugby is generally seen as behind the eight ball generally in terms of directionally as a sport. Rugby is quite conservative. Some would say quite backwards would be the most severe critics. Is that something that's been more clear to you since your move to the NFL? You can see areas in which the NFL or American football in general is significantly ahead of rugby. Yeah, it's, it's hard to characterise this for the reason you just said. One's a governing body and it's dealing with, with um, you know, an electorate voting stakeholders and it's dealing with global differences in the way uh, the game's perceived and different stages of the game and so on. Uh, a league is very focused um, and a league like the NFL in the States has been around for 100 years and has evolved its focus over that period of time. And so it's very aligned, it's very sharply commercially focused. In fact, it's totally commercially focused. And uh, yeah, there are lots and lots of similarities, but I don't think it's a before or ahead or a behind. But there is a sophistication in the way the NFL goes about the business, but it's a very, very big business. You know, a Rugby World Cup, which is most of the income of world rugby over a four-year period, probably turns over when you really round it up and add up a few things to pretty close to a billion dollars every four years. The NFL turns over $17 billion per annum. So, so you, you, you're talking significantly different um, scales and probably levels of resource, uh, sophistication and, and impact in the biggest commercial market in the world. I mean, a, a, you know, a Super Bowl is the only thing in, that keeps 75% of America doing the same thing at the same time. Uh, there's no other event 
like it in that country and no other event owns a Saturday like NFL does and probably the second most watched sport in America is college football and then you move on through NBA and the others. So it, it, it has a highly dominant position in the US market and that sophistication comes from its economic clout and focus. Is it your view that there is much more clarity and a, and, a, and a sense of purpose and an easing delivering that sense of purpose in the NFL than there is in rugby union? Because one of the criticisms you often hear, and I'd be as critical as most of world rugby, I mean, I routinely call it the non-governing governing body. Well, it's half a joke, but not completely a joke, because it seems to me that it's entirely the slave of its own constituent members, its national unions, which may have different agendas domestically to the agenda that world rugby has. Uh, am I right in thinking that the NFL is much more streamlined in its decision-making or American football in general is much more streamlined in its decision-making? It is and it's a league and it's probably easier to compare us with the top 14 in some ways than a governing body. Yeah, world rugby, I don't know if it's a slave to it, but it's very um, conscious of its stakeholders because they you know, vote the leadership in every four years. And so that leadership has to keep uh, their electorate involved uh, and relevant, happy, and, and, and so on. Now, there's an electorate. The NFL is owned, and it's a private company, and it's owned by the owners of each of the 32 clubs, 31 high net individuals, uh, high net worth individuals, plus uh, a fan ownership base at, at Green Bay Packers. And when you sit in those meetings with the, the owners, the ownership meetings versus the world rugby meetings, there does just appear to be full alignment, full agreement. There's probably a, a, a higher ratio um, of involvement of the league versus maybe world rugby in, in, in all aspects. So and is that, is that, Brett, because in, in the end there's a, 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 a commonality, I may just have invented a word, yeah, a yeah. commonality of, alignment of, of, interest. Of, of model and of, uh, of model <laughs> and therefore of purpose? Yes, totally. And, and like 80% of the revenues are equally shared amongst uh, the, the, the clubs. So they're that provides a complete alignment of, of purpose and outcome. And, you know, they've been doing this together a long time. You know, some of these families and owners have been in it for generations. Uh, they've evolved uh, over time to a, to a place which I think is, you know, obviously there are issues and they deal with them, decisions to make and all the rest of it. But generally speaking, at the Uber level, there are, there are, there's very strong alignment and a sense of purpose. One issue that rugby has that I would argue that American football in principle has, but maybe gets over in a way that rugby doesn't, is complications in terms of there being a lot of rules and it being quite you know, difficult to follow to a T. Do you think the NFL does a better job at getting over that than rugby does in terms of rugby has rule changes every year, pretty much, and, or law changes, sorry? Yeah, there's lots of, there's lots of law changes in, in American football too, and most of them are uh, player welfare oriented, like probably they mostly are in in rugby too. The difficulty, and again, it's a league versus governing body thing, the process of law change is very slow and cumbersome because you have to involve a vast number of geographies in, in, in world rugby and a vast number of opinions because of the political nature of the, of the organisation. Um, and then because you're on a four-year cycle uh, where they plan that those, that those laws in rugby are tested um, you know, regionally and so on, and then they don't come into. They've got to be in practice one year before a World Cup, so that everyone's playing a World Cup to to, to the laws that the, the, they're used to understanding that they've had. They've actually had a year of experience on it, 
that those cycles don't exist in in NFL. If they want to make a law change, they can literally change it from one week to another. You know, I, I don't hear about the testing of laws so much in in NFL. I'm not as involved in my role here at the NFL in law change, but in sitting through meetings, it seems to be not an area of high contention uh, or, or of uh, you know a longer cumbersome process, which which is needed at World Rugby in a way. And they've always you know they've tried to to shorten some of those timelines and simplify and so on. But the nature of the beast means there are just so many people involved in you know rugby committees and welfare committees and 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 the frequency of 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 those meetings and and the testing of those laws it's just it is it is by by nature a cumbersome process in rugby and do you think the presentation of american football laws is facilitated for spectators in a way that rugby's laws are not i don't know i think a lot of rugby people would argue that american football is complicated both sports are not easy to understand i don't think for the for the non-enlightened if you like so I, I don't think there's a real difference. I, I think, you know, in, in outside of the States, there's difficulty and there's an educational process as there, as there is for rugby when you're dealing with less traditional markets and so on. So I think they're pretty comparable on that, on that basis. Do, 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 you, do you feel, Brett, that there's, um, there's a bit of a similarity in one sense between gridiron, American football, whatever we want to call it, and rugby league, massive contact sports, as is union, what separates union out is the idea of the genuine contest for the ball in every phase of the game? Yes. So in in, in gridiron, yeah, you, you you may get some you may get some loose balls, dislodged balls, um, a loose pass, turnovers, etc., etc., etc. But the contest for the ball is is minimal in the way that it, it is in league, and it's maximal in union. Do you think, with your player welfare hat on, briefly, that that's a sustainable position for union? What's well, a deep, a deep, a deep subject on uh, on that? I think that the integrity of rugby union is based on that contest, whether it be the scrum, the line out, the the, the rucks, the malls, and, and so on. And that is that is the heart of the of of the the purpose of the sport. And I think you've you've defined it really well in that sense. And that is the differentiation of it between league. It, it, league is a possession game, um, not the contest so much for the ball. It's how well you handle the possession of it. Um, and, and American football, you know, very similar in that sense. I think it's a good good observation. But no, I think if you take that out of union, you don't have union anymore. And I think all of the evolution of laws has been to try to improve the well-being and safety of players while at the same time continuing to, 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 to create that contest that, that is so unique to rugby union. Do you, do you think, looking back, and, and, and you certainly weren't chief executive of World Rugby at the time that this happened, but there are some of us old gits who beat our breasts about this regularly. Do you think, and you, you played at a good level and you would have played in the, in the days when the Rutgers old stages understood it. And I'm not on about kicking people on the floor, but I'm on about people staying on their feet and getting past the ball to win the ball in numbers. Do you think that the, the basic eradication of that dynamic in the game has caused more problems than it's solved? It is possible. I don't know if you can turn the clock back and say, okay, now we're going to start rucking in the true sense of the word. And you know, I've been on the floor of a few rucks and you don't need to be kicked for it to be hurt. I mean, None rucking, of them were any fun, were they? No, no, no. But you knew what you were going, you knew what was going to happen to you and you got rucked out and it was it was a rough old contest. But it drew a lot of players into that contest. It opened some spaces 
And, you know, there, the obsidian rugby committees, there's often a fondness to see if there's some, some way to turn the clock back on that. But the game just seems to evolve to, to, to a point where it's very, very difficult for that kind of, <laughs> it, it, it just seems to have moved on. Uh, and, and players' feet and heads and so on, although the, if you can take the intentional uh, elements out of the brutality that might have existed when I played, um, I think there's still probably a high possibility of foot to head in that in that scenario now that wouldn't be acceptable anymore slightly different question i'm going to put actually both of you on the spot which current rugby player do you think could make it in the nfl or who would you like to give it a go we obviously had christian wade who's ended his three-year spell with buffalo bills which started well but from what i can see faded uh who would you like to see be given a go i'll start with you brett it's probably the big guys it, it tends to be the guys who are you know defensive linesmen offensive linesmen and so on, who tight ends. It's those sort of players that we tend to be able to find. And, we, and we've got an academy here in the UK and an international player pathway for NFL. And they're the kind of players, size, reach, wingspan, uh, physical. Um, you won't find too many quarterbacks uh, lying around in, in, in the UK. It's such a technical position. You might have a running back like a, like Christian Wade or a, or, or, or a wide receiver finisher like a winger. Courtney Laws, Maritoje, you know, players like this would find their way, uh, I think, into, 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 into NFL teams. And certainly Courtney Laws for sure. You think the battle for a player like that is easier or a more natural transition than for a natural, running back? More, it's still very technical, but it's yeah. probably a, 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 a more natural transition for them. Um, I mean, Christian, fab, fabulous athlete, didn't have a, a great deal of luck on the injury front battled for three years to really find his place in the sport. An athlete like that it just shows you that there are technicalities and culture that, that has to be overcome over a period of time. And he's a fine athlete. And we saw some you know, flashes of brilliance early on in particular. Yeah. But yeah, you, always when you look at a winger uh, running, you think that could be, you know, that, that can be a, a, you know, a wide receiver of sorts running backs that, you know, there, there are some great, there's some great players with great footwork in rugby that, that could that could certainly push their way near or around an NFL side. But you know, these athletes are, are remarkable in the States and the pipeline and the volume and the depth they have to find those athletes is, is just at another level. Chris? If we leave aside Antoine Dupont, who can do anything in any sport, he could probably be a figure skater. So um, we'll, we'll, we'll leave him to one side because I'm, I'm not sufficiently up on the on the niceties of, of American football positioning to know exactly which of the 453 positions he would best fill. Um, but I, 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 certainly, I certainly think he ought to give it a go. Um, but more, more seriously, I would have thought, seriously, someone really dynamic in contact like Ellis Genge, for example. Yeah, Ellis Genge. That kind of yeah. guy could Ellis probably play in that, in that front line of tight ends and all those guys. Whatever it is they do in there, I don't know. And, of course, he's so ugly that a helmet would be great. So that would be absolutely <laughs> fine. Um, I, would also th- I would also think, um, I, I don't know how quick straight line speed somebody like Hardy Surveyor is, but he's so unusually strong freakishly strong in contact there may be some role there Cameron Wockey as well I mean I, I just think Wockey is an extraordinary athlete now whether there's a position in gridiron that would suit his particular abilities that I don't know but it would be a strange old game if there was no place whatsoever for a bloke with his 
physical capacities, which are limitless, it seems to me. Well, and look, we have combines, international player pathways to test these players that we'd always welcome rugby stars who were seeking that transition. And we know by the combines how suitable or not they would be in the series of tests and physical tests that we do on these players as to, as to their probability or likelihood of succeeding at a level. But it's a pun, it's a, it's a big, it's a gamble for a player who's already earning very well playing rugby at a top level to make that leap and, and, and find after two or three years, he's not going to make it in NFL. And initially he's not going to be quite paid as much, but the, but the gain at the end of that journey, the two, three year journey to make it in an NFL team could be huge. But, but Brett, is, is, is there not one of a hundred Fijian wings out there who could um, who could make a wide receiver? I mean, they're 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 big and quick. We know that much about them. Um, quite often, they catch as well. I mean, they've got extraordinary. There are Pacific, Island, Pacific Islands dotted through the through the leagues in different positions. Uh, you know that that gene pool is an amazing sporting gene pool. The Pacific Islands and they exist. I can't give you the names of them off the top of my head, but um, there there is a a, a lot of what we know as, as, as a great source of rugby talent is also a source of rugby football talent in the States, either second generation, um, you know, not born there, but born of Pacific Island parents in, in, in the States and so on. They're, they're very prevalent. And, and as American football does everything else um, as well as it does, I'm sure it's absolutely off the scale, brilliant at scouting and, and talent identification or, or potential identification. Do you, do, you, do you actually, I mean, do you have guys who, who go anywhere near the Pacific Islands to, to cast an eye, or, or do, you, do you, I mean, would you have a local over there who just says, "I've just got, I've got just the bloke for you"? Um, I think scouts are, I think agents are playing that role to a certain extent. I also think scouts are looking at, at, at videos of other sports and cross athletes. Jordan Malaita was playing rugby league in in uh, for the Rabbitohs in Sydney, huge player, and has now signed massive contracts in the NFL. Changed his life, and he's of. From memory, Tongan uh, origin, I think, uh, rather than Samoa. But uh, so that you know, he, he, someone said the scouts are real of him playing rugby league, and it went from there. Would Jonah have made it? I think he's the sort of player that certainly would have uh, would have caught their eye, and 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 very definitely could have had a place in. Uh... See, the thing in, with rugby, you know, good rugby players are passing, catching, kicking, um, doing all aspects of the game, and so that in, in NFL they've got to see. One aspect of their of their talent would he have been pushing people in a, in, a, in a defensive line, or would he would he have actually had the ball in hand, or who knows? Would he be a running? Would he have been a running back? You'd imagine charging up the middle as a running back. I think. You know. Well, we, we we know he had the turning circuit of the Titanic, but in 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 American football, you don't really have to turn around because another team comes on to do that stuff, doesn't it? So um, so if he's only running in one direction, I think Jonah would have been your man. Yeah, no, he definitely, definitely was a freak of nature, and, and would have found his way into any, uh, any, any contact sport field. I think. And by the way, Chris, thank you for burning down any bridges with Ellis Gens. He will now never be appearing on his, his podcast. Um, feel free not to tell him where I live, although, <laughs> although he's he's about to return to Bristol, which is unnervingly close for him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's a remarkable force of nature. He is, and even if Chris would rather see him under a helmet. <laughs> I'd rather see him from a different continent. <laughs> a wild Brendan has just appeared. How are you, Brendan? Not too bad, guys. Sorry, but a late um, appearance. Had a little doctor's appointment, but all good now. No, no worries. So we're, I'll, I'll throw you straight under the bus. We are talking about which rugby player we'd like to see in the NFL. 
or who well, we past or present? We were going present. We just erred on to Jonah, but let's go present for the moment. Well, I'll, I'll, quickly, I'll quickly go back to past. Jason Robinson would have been a sensation, no question about it. He would have ripped it up and been a multi award winner. But let's go with current cohort now. Who would you like to see? Uh, okay. Well, I was going to say um, Henry Arundel, which is again a bit of a, a punt because he's only got two England caps. Um, but it's just he's got that very fast sort of side foot shuffle, which you need in American football, and was absolutely showcased in that incredible try against Toulon, where he almost sort of stopped. He almost, his feet go the other way, he almost backpedals and then goes again. And when you've got limited space, combine that with his gas, he would be a, a pretty good American footballer, I'd say, um, without question. Probably someone like Jonathan Dante, you know, that, that sort of character in midfield. Manu would have probably had a short career. In, in, in NFL, he would have lasted about three years and that would have been it. He would have been cropped forever. Uh, he but, yeah, been lasted in Union. <laughs> <laughs> Remember how difficult it was for Sam Burgess to come, uh, you know, the top rugby league player in in Britain and he had he had trouble, you know, yeah. he had real trouble integrating into a Union game. That, but that shows the difficulty in transferring a yeah. similar, let alone something that is technically different as uh, NFL. I think, let's be honest, Manu, Manu would not have lasted three years. In, in no, NFL. he would have lasted not, not a chance. three months. Yeah. Not three even. months. Yeah, exactly. Okay, right. Let's put that to one side for the moment. What I want to do very quickly, because we are three days away from the rugby championship, is just at least preview it a tiny little bit, because it is one of the weirdest build-ups to a rugby championship in recent memory, because no team carries all that much momentum. Summer Series, we had two series losses and New Zealand and Australia, and two narrow series wins for South Africa and Argentina. Brendan, I'll, I'll come to you. I think I know the answer, but who is this championship most important for? Yes, it's New Zealand. I mean, New Zealand need to reset very, very quickly because you don't get much time in New Zealand when things go wrong. Uh, there's not an awful lot of sympathy in their press. So New Zealand need to get it back, the show back on the road very, very quickly. But like you say, there's issues for everybody there. I, I'm fascinated by South Africa. Reigning world champions, just won the Commonwealth Games, beat the Lions last summer. And yet you read all the South African media, uh, social media, um, you think they're in some sort of crisis. <laughs> you know, if that's a crisis, give it to me, guys. But I, I think they probably do need an impressive campaign just to sort of quieten that mood of discontent, which don't know where where it's come from. Argentina need to get their act together. They've got the players. They just need to get their act together. Australia, a couple of promising signs, a lot of injuries, and uh, I don't know how many of those big players are back from injury. Are South Africa, Chris, actually out-and-out favourites? Obviously, their blueprint works against a team like Wales, certainly in the third test at the very least. Does that need adjusting against the sort of more expansive brands of rugby that the other three sides, in comparison, play to Wales? I'm, I'm not sure it does, and I'm not sure they're in any mood to do so. I mean, I, I, I don't really see that Springbok sides change that much from generation to generation. I mean, they're, they're generally bigger than the opposition. They're generally more direct than the opposition. They generally want to beat you up as well as beat you. Um, uh, I, I, think, I think their mentality is extraordinarily strong extraordinarily strong and you see it across sports as well you see it with their cricket team you know uh at, you know at the moment their cricketers they don't have a star-studded side there are sort of four or five guys that that most cricket followers would would know a fair bit about but they're still amazingly competitive i don't think they'll change very much i actually think that um 
I'm, I'm not sure this is critical. This is a critical series for New Zealand as much as it's a critical series for Ian Foster because he's come out of this like a lot of leaders having dumped all the people around him and 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 somehow managed to stay in place he's under a whole heap of pressure and it's not as though they don't have any alternatives some of them are speaking very volubly <laughs> about wanting to coach the all blacks so i think foster is under a lot of heat i think the interest the really interesting side in this and i've, I've, I've thought it for a good few months now are the wallabies yes they've lost pretty disappointingly in the end to england um in that series but i i do think if if only they were in a position to pick their best blokes to have a, to, for, for Dave Rennie to have a, a, a clean slate and a complete group of players from whom to pick. You know, there was no Will Skelton. The Arnolds weren't there. Sean McMahon's not there because he was restricted to picking three blokes from abroad. That's the one thing that the Springboks have not done. They said, go wherever you like, play wherever you like. As long as you're available for us when we need you, you can go and play on the moon, if you so wish. So I do think that Australia have got um, a fundamental issue with selection, but if they got that right, I think that they're, uh, they will play a pretty serious role in next year's World Cup. Brett, do you agree with that on the Australia front? I think their issue's always been the same. They've got a depth issue, probably more so now than before. So they've got good players and they can string a you know, good test series maybe together and, and so on. I just question the depth they've got when they do have injuries. It affects them uh, hugely uh, versus other rugby nations that have much bigger reservoirs of, of talent to draw upon. So their problem's always going to be the odd injury. But look, yeah, I think they sh- showed some good signs against England. Are they signs to say that's a side that could threaten to win a World Cup? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. There seems to be a... a a, a bit of a jump up to the, let's say, the Frances, South Africa. I, I think the, the the All Blacks are going through a little bit of a, of a transition and they'll rectify and they'll, they'll, they'll come back as strong as ever. Um, yeah, question is, will the, will the coach survive this period? Is, is an interesting one. Again, like their players, there's a reservoir of coaching talent there to call upon if they decide to make a change. Um, uh, and I agree. You see, didn't have more coaches in Australia have players, Brett. obviously the all blacks media is despairing about a potentially lower talent pool and lower participation brett you think that the all blacks will come back stronger i think in the time period from here to the world cup yes i think that you know are are they on slow long-term decline um as a rugby power possibly but i think that'll be noticed in the next between now and the world cup talent there to, to, to challenge for a World Cup in, in France. Who starts at 12 now that um, Samu Karevi is out for Australia? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not close enough to it to make, to make that call. You know, they could, they, could, they could put two fly halves like England's done in the past, I guess, um, but it's not really there. It's not the way they play usually. They'll want, they'll want someone physical in that role, I think. Yeah. They did it in the 2015 World Cup though, Brett. You know, when, when Gitto came back and played outside Foley, and, and and that was that was a good that was a good wallaby side. Combination, yeah, very good, very strong side. Yeah, and you, you can, I mean, I know it's a different age. You can go right the way back to Mark Allen and Michael Liner playing ten and twelve when when Liner was sort of learning yeah. his trade. I mean, it's it, it's a debate we have here all the time about whether you should play the yeah. old 
versus second five eight system, and you know have have a have a second ten or certainly a second playmaker at twelve. And if you've got a big beast, stick him at thirteen, where he's running into a bit of a softer underbelly. Or where do you pick the basher at twelve and, and go from there? And it, and it's it, that debate never changes. It's in philosophy, though, isn't it? You know what you do in South Africa, but yeah, Australia might debate that a bit. Um, it's tended to get a bit more physical in recent times. That position. Yeah. In terms of New Zealand, if that so, they start with South Africa um, away in South Africa for the Tough first start. two tests, which really, tough start. really awful start. They won't have wanted that because a quick two week turnaround after two consecutive losses to Ireland. Yeah, if they lose both of those tests, they've lost six in seven. I don't think it's ever happened. I don't think that's ever happened, no. I think the Prime Minister might lose her job if that happens. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I think they once lost... Did they once lose five on the banks? I, I, I remember telling a joke on New Zealand radio saying, what's the difference between your back and an arsonist? No arsonist would lose his last five matches, which was um, which, which, which went down like a lead balloon. Um, I never knew they were so serious about their rugby over there. Yeah, no, I didn't pick that up. <laughs> but do we think then, Brendan, for example, if they win one in South Africa, do you think that's enough because if they do that they can go on to win the entire tournament is that is that enough for Foster to yeah, stay I, I would have thought what one win would settle the nerves a little bit I mean you know if you drew with South Africa one or win a, in a two match mini series that would be okay that would be acceptable I think under current circumstances and like you say from that point onwards you know having got one win in South Africa they'd probably be favourites to win the tournament so yeah it, it, it's a, it's a very, very big couple of weeks for New Zealand down in South Africa. They're going to be really good matches to watch. I'm looking forward to it now that uh, now they're getting a bit closer. They're struggling in the tight five a little bit and, and with Ritalik gone. And Ritalik's not actually the player at the moment he was. But that's the area where the renewal's happening. Not renewal, but that's the transition point is up front, not yeah. their back yeah. line is as strong and you know exciting as it ever has been probably. But yeah, there's some... There's a transition period happening in the in the engine room, which is not comfortable for them. It will be very interesting to see how that Type Five, especially without a Retallick, even if he is under firing, yeah. handles the South African monsters. It's been announced that Malcolm Marks is actually starting, so the bomb squad will have a slightly different shape to it. Um, he's going to be he's going to be tired after twenty minutes, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he's not used to much more than that. Right, let's leave the rugby championship there. But next week, we will have former Australia captain James Hallwell on. So do tune in for a review of the opening weekend and a look ahead to the weeks to come. Right, Brett, it's time for your random rugby 15. Let's get going. Nickname? Never had a nickname. In your life? No. Really? No. Oh, what? In my family, they used to call me Brawl because my brother couldn't say brother when he was about four years old. But I don't think that counts as a nickname. So uh, no, never really, never really got a nickname, which I think is a good sign. When you've got a really short first name, you don't need a nickname. Brett, no, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> that's definitely a first. Right, best rugby memory, personal rugby memory, or or is this what's it, or just yeah, personal rugby memory. Pr- probably, uh, I I played for Australia in the under twenty ones at the Sydney Cricket Ground against a New Zealand team. Uh, just after the war <laughs> and I think for any young kid uh, you know uh, that was just a, a you know a, a fabulous experience to pull on your national jerseys uh, I didn't get to do it much after that but uh, I was pleased to have done it at least once in that in, in front of a good crowd at the city crew ground most embarrassing rugby memory 
probably in, a, in, a, in what, what the French call the third half, uh, probably probably an after-game performance somewhere uh, in some nightclub in in France. <laughs> I would have embarrassed myself, but I won't uh, reveal much more on that. <laughs> Maybe off-air. Pre-game tune. Yeah, see, we didn't wear earphones. Uh, you know, we didn't sort of... Uh, I don't know what was around when we were playing, but uh, players would have put a, an echo... Uh, a ghetto, sorry, blaster on the, on the edge of the field as best they could to, if they wanted music. And we used to put, actually, we used to put jazz uh, on oh, wow. to annoy the other teams uh, when we played for the racing in pink bow ties back in the uh, in the 80s. So we would put stuff that would annoy the opposition that we thought we were a bit show busy and so on. So I can't give you one. I can just give you a, a mood music. A genre. Yeah. No, jazz is excellent. Post-game meal. Got it. Read that. I can remember seeing that. Um, usually, again in France, sit down dinner, uh, steak, wine, the whole thing. Uh, it, it, it's it was an important, but meals important part of rugby in France. Pre-game as well. You'd sit down in a pre-game, uh, steak, uh, rice usually, um, yogurt for dessert. But there would be wine on the table when I used to play for the racing in France, and the occasional player would take a bit of a sip for digestive reasons, of course. <laughs> We were a team that had oh, champagne sorry. at halftime in the 1990 grand final um, of the French Championship. So, unusual team. Whose idea was that, Brett? There were a number of players. We At that time, we were. it became expected the racing club would pull off some stunt. And we did it from 87, where we thought, we thought, what the hell are we doing in a quarterfinal? It's the last time we'll ever be on TV. Let's be remembered. And then we kept winning when we did the stunt. So, we kept the stunts going. And... The halftime call, at the end of the day, Jean-Baptiste Lafon would have approved that because he led the backs with the racing club at the time. So he'd have been the main approver of that happening. If he'd have said no, they'd have said no. And they were down at halftime in that game. And uh, I thought when the waiter comes on, he's going to get he's going to get ignored. But they all came across and took a swig of the champagne glasses and went on to beat Ajahn. Did, didn't you cycle to the final one year? Or one uh, of the big we matches? cycled. We cycled on against Bayern in in Bayern one year. So that was one <laughs> of the stunts we did. We we came on. We played the game with Berets actually and won won that game in 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 Bayern. We tried to get flyover permission to arrive in a helicopter at a game at Colombe one weekend, and we even rang Jacques Chirac, who was the mayor of Paris at the time, and he didn't agree to the to the airspace. But agreed to marry as as the mayor, one of one marry, you know, preside over one of the weddings of, of one of the players who was getting married that weekend instead as a compromise. But yeah. How how annoying, Brett, is it for the opposition to lose to you when you're pulling stunts like that? Well, well it was because you see, we were the hated team from Paris. There was only one Paris team in those days. And everything we did that made us look like we were cocky Parisian showbiz. Um, it, it just wound them up no end. And, you know, we, we, we actually played one game, and I'm not sure it's politically correct these days, but we actually painted ourselves in black. We had a, a, a black prop who we loved dearly and to play a joke on him and to be solidarity with him one day, we all, and we came out of the dressing room because the forwards would never do this. It was always only the backs. And he looked at us and he just he couldn't catch a ball for the first five minutes. He was laughing so much. And we were all painted in complete black and it was against Toulouse in Toulouse and it was actually the first time the racing ever won you don't win in Toulouse away games in those days and we did we won that day um and it was a pretty star-studded um you, you'll remember Bonval, Charvet yeah, and a lot of others at the time yeah best player you've played against 
no question, uh, Philippe Seller played often against Philippe Seller in club games. Denis Charvet also was it was it was often played against Denis. The, the two, you know, I think Philippe Seller's the finest centre to come out of France. Mm. Best player you've played with? Um, it was uncomfortable game. Probably the best player I've played. Oh God, lots of them. We had seven French players in the racing team that I played with, and, I, and you know, Laurent Caban, Frank Minel, uh, Jean-Baptiste Lafont being the best of those backs. But I'd say Serge Blanco. I played in a French selection against a British barbarian side at the Parc des Princes and unfortunately played on the wing where Serge Blanco was the outside centre. Try keeping up with him on an afternoon. That was, it was you know, normally when he goes to the winger, he's meant to sort of like just, you know, glide past, past in, in, you know, but I was just panting to just keep within passing distance of him. Yeah. <laughs> or at least you would have kept your depth. Yeah, you, were, yes, you, were, you wouldn't so. been, you wouldn't be, have been overrunning his pass. Very much so. I never I never overran. It, no forward pass was on the cards that day. I can no. Well, if it, if it was, it was his fault. Favorite player right now? I think, and it's well, I, too, I like Marcus. I like, I like with American football. I watch quarterbacks. I tend to watch fly halves and centers in rugby. I think Marcus Smith has got a got a star quality to him, and I still like watching Quade Cooper. I mean, these are. <laughs> These are players that you know things are going to happen when they're on the field and uh, they're compelling viewing. I'm just trying to find out whether Quay Cooper is actually starting for the weekend. Is he in Argentina? I don't think think the team's been announced yet, has it? You know, it's probably time for them to look ahead now, but his his older head works better for the team than it did back in the day. So... uh, but just compelling to watch. Yeah, I remember absolutely. him in two thousand in the two thousand and eleven World Cup, Brett, when the, the Wallabies played the All Blacks in the in the semi final, and he was taking a ferocious Look at, from the crowd, everything, yeah, exactly. And and I thought, a the guy's dignity and and the way he just the way he dealt with that because it must have been pretty unpleasant. You know, I mean, I mean everyone doesn't you. take any notice of what's being said, but you know, you you've, you're less than human if it doesn't. No, no, Toad. I think he's evolved in a really interesting personality. Oh, yeah. and, and and the game he played right. in that semi-final, he did not for a second, not for a second, did he give up. I mean, yeah, it, yeah, it was terrific to watch. I, I I had came out of that with a lot of respect for the bloke. I must admit. No, and I think I think when you know the backstory of some of these players and, and the human side of it and so on, it just makes them more interesting. Like all sport, if you know it'll do more than what they what, what they're about off the field, it's interesting. He also did one of the best lockdown Twitter feeds. I don't know if you ever followed him doing his, his daily skills session. And he would do That's these right, yeah. 40-yard reverse passes. He'd teach you how to do the banana kick. He'd do backheel drop kicks. I mean, there's nothing he can't do with a rugby ball. <laughs> and although we've seen, you know, he, he is an, um, a major talent. I'm not even sure we ever saw the best of him, but hopefully there's a couple of years left now because he could make it sing, couldn't he, a rugby ball? Yeah. Uh, so much so, his, his distribution, his vision, and so on. And yeah, he, look, he took risks sometimes um, that he shouldn't have taken. But he seems to have tempered his game. Maybe the legs don't uh, yeah. back, back himself quite as much as they used to, and that's made him a better fly half in a, in a young team. Rugby idol, Jean Pierre Reeve, and he was captain of, of our team at the racing, and he was every bit as impressive as a person as he was a player. Yeah, great leader, inspired great you know, loyalty from people who were with him uh, on the field and into the night. (laughs) (laughs) 
Favourite stadium? The SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles is the most impressive stadium I've ever seen. You're probably talking rugby stadiums. And maybe that'll be a rugby stadium at the World Cup in, in the US. So, uh, But that is so far ahead of anything I've ever seen in terms of a, a sports meets entertainment uh, facility. Uh, my uh, my nostalgic favourite stadium is Cologne Stadium in in uh, in France, but it's got a lot of issues. <laughs> <laughs> What's the capacity of the SoFi Stadium? Do we know? I'd like to Google it, sure. but I think it's probably eighty thousand at the top. Yeah, seventy. Seventy, right? Yeah. yeah, but it's obviously very very vertical, so it gives sort of. It's a, like the Colosseum in Rome; it goes straight up, and it yeah. has these tiers. And the infinity screen in the middle is like something that has, has landed from another planet. Yeah. And you can see you, your eyes dance from that to the field without knowing that you're making that transition because you can see every inner part of the circle, the outer part of the circle, and you're getting, you, 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 your eyes are filled with more than they can handle almost, but it just seems to happen very naturally in that stadium. Favourite gym exercise? Yeah, the best or the favourite. The, 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 Go on, get, get probably get the favourite is probably bench pressing. I think that's because you're lying down and it feels good, and <laughs> and uh, you can spend a lot of time chatting to someone while you do it. And uh, I, I'd rather look at the ceiling than the floor. So push-ups, I, I don't like, although they're, they're they're the easiest to do anywhere you are at any time. Do you ever try bench pressing without weights, Brett? That's brilliant. It's, it's, I usually it's... start off that way. <laughs> I usually start off that way and then move on to the same. <laughs> Slightly different question, I suppose. Occupation if rugby didn't exist? Well, I'd have been in the advertising world. That's where I've come from. I was an advertising yeah. executive um, and was passionate and really loved. It was great fun, the advertising industry, when I was in it. Um, still probably fun, but, yeah, I'd, I'd have been an ad man. I guess. In sports, it could have been anything else in I think I just love sports, so I'd have been happy landing in, in most most of the of the big sports. Superstitions. Don't really have any superstition, but when I played rugby in France, centers were left and right, not inside and outside. It took me a while to adapt from Australia where I was an inside center. And whether you wore 12 or 13, therefore, was immaterial. And my superstition playing, and I had a fellow centre that was usually either Frank Manella or a guy called Eric Blanc. Uh, Frank played fly half and centre, depending on, on what the team, the team was. I would always offer the other centre the choice of the number, and the other centre would always take 12. <laughs> so, so I was not superstitious about 13 because I knew that's what I'd always end up, yeah. uh, the number on my back. I know Brian, Brian O'Driscoll's uh, Twitter handle is named... And it's a word I never remember, but it's the fear of the number 13. And it's a Latin word. I can't remember what it is. But I didn't oh, have that I fear. I didn't uh, have that fear. Rugby law you would change? Do you know, I've been across and around and in and, and there's no magic. There's no silver bullet on this. I think the most disruptive thing possibly would be you can't kick out on the full. Penalised for kicking out in any situation when I think would keep the ball in play. Uh, a lot more and may even reduce the amount of kicking. Um, so clearance kicks out of the out of the twenty two. No, no way you can't. In. You got to, You have to kick it back into play if you're going to if you're going to relieve any pressure. Okay, interesting. That's a new one. Triscodecophobia, by the way, that's the word. Is it there? Is that that's that's yeah. I'll try and spell it. <laughs> that's his. 
Um, well, it must be his Twitter handle. I don't know. It's you his, tell me. It's his Twitter handle. Obviously, it is. Yeah. Best thing about I know you no longer work in rugby, but best thing about working in rugby when you did. Well, that you watched a lot of rugby, and that's always a pleasure. And and the, and the, it was mainly that just you just saw you had the best seat in the house for all, all the rugby games that you wanted to go to was the best thing about it. But I loved the people in it too. All, all good people, despite the fact they didn't always have the same view on things. But you would get the good seats, wouldn't you? Yeah, you do get the good seats. Oh, lucky man. Right. So the main topic of discussion I wanted to address today, and I know we're, we're slightly pushed for time, was the World Cup being hosted in the United States, uh, which was announced, I think it was announced back in May, that yes. America would have 2031 for the men and 2033 for the women's World Cup. Now, I guess it's been a... A contentious but encouraging decision. So first things first, I guess, Brett, sell it to us. Well, I mean, I don't, well firstly, the question, why would it be contentious, I, I guess? I mean, it, it is going to provide the sport, if successful, with access and, 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 and the possibility of earning far greater revenues than the sports earned uh, previously in World Cups and so on, um, bringing with it, high television rights out of the States in particular, commercial partners, um, greater athletes out of the US. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it, it is an important step for the economic stability of, of the sport. Um, you know, some people will worry that if America really take the sport, they'll dominate the sport and so on. But I think they're short, you know, that, that, that's short-sighted in, 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 in thinking that way it would allow many boats to rise if that was a financial success and, and help solve a lot of the issues that rugby has, particularly the second divisional areas. Uh, I say the second divisional, I say that, you know, the more um, emerging, the less, the less traditional set successful, let's say rugby championship, six nations, nations, I'm talking about the rest. So look, it's an, it, it's, it's an economic must for the sport and only a rugby world cup will make a dent with the American fan base at all, uh, you know, Major League Rugby is sort of trotting along. The Sevens team does quite well in Olympics always, you know, for a couple of weeks a year, maybe give it a little bit of visibility. But only a Rugby World Cup, as it did for football, was it in 94, 92, which was it? Um, 94. 94, sorry, yeah, 94. 92 was Barcelona Olympics. 94 yeah. did it actually put the sport on the radar in the United States. It's now FIFA's biggest broadcast and commercial earner. It doesn't mean the States are dominating football, but it does mean they're providing great economy for the sport in, 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 in soccer as they would in, in rugby. So I'm not selling it, but it's a... What, 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 what football are the Americans, or what soccer are the Americans watching though, Brett? Are they, are they watching Premier League, Champions League, or are they watching Major League? So a little bit of both, but obviously the, the Americans want to watch the best of the best. So they're going to be watching, you know, the Premier League and the Bundesliga on, on broadcast. There's a, there's a large a number of them going to their own games for Major League Soccer and so on. But, but, but the point is it's providing great economics for the sport elsewhere than America, which is what the model is. I mean, you know, taking that funding and distributing it throughout the rugby world will be incredibly helpful. I also, think, I also think a World Cup in America, while it'll be dispersed more than most World Cups, will be a fabulous experience for the fans. I, I think, you know, some of the stadia, the NFL stadia, that'll be used, some of the, some of the cities 
the way the Americans will be hospitable around a sport like rugby and so on. I think it'll be a fabulous experience for fans to enjoy. So, so the, the, the crucial question, Brett, I guess, or, or, or one, one that we struggle with, uh, try and look into the future of this thing, is uh, given that the Americans are bound to make a brilliant job of this, advertising-wise, marketing-wise, corporate-wise, all those, all those things around the game, and you say it's crucial to is crucial to the financial stability of rugby union. And I can see that argument, but does that, does that survive the U S Eagles being rubbish on their own, on their own turf? Well, look, we had these conversations about the Japanese, you know, two, two world cups out that they, they're never going to, they're never going to hold up a, a team there. When, when you've got the focus of a world cup and, and look, they're struggling to qualify at this point in time, given the game against Chile and all the rest it'd be, it'd be really a setback if they didn't make it to, uh, to France for sure, but they've got a good period of time to build a team for, for funding that will be, they'll get help from world rugby. They'll get help from commercial partners. I'm sure the focus of a world cup is what it did for Japan. It gives you a real timeline and urgency to build a team over a generation, which is what they'll do. And they'll be competitive and, and you want them to, to go deep in the tournament. You want them to go deep in a tournament and, and, and they've got a world rugby. Everyone has to do everything they can to, to, uh, to make sure they go deep. Look, world rugby's purpose is to grow the game globally. If, you know, America is both a, a destination of growth, but a source of further growth for funding for other markets to grow as well. Um, and and, and it's, it's therefore, they owe it to the sport to succeed in that market. In the best way they can, and Rugby World Cup gives gives the sport that opportunity. I think. Can I just be devil's advocate a little bit there? Sure, sure, sure. And there lots I of them. To- totally. You know, I'd love the USA to stage a great tournament, and I'd love them to emerge as a you know a, a really serious test nation. But in terms of growing the game, Argentina, Uruguay, and Chile on the South American continent, so you've got three World Cup finalists there already. Is that not an area where we could be looking? to give them a World Cup, a combined Uruguay-Argentina World Cup? And are they not really ahead on the pecking order in, in if that's how these things work, of having a World Cup? Look, the World Cup is the feeder economically of the sport and, and world rugby uh, like no other event. You, you can't, you try to de-risk that event as much as you can. At the moment, the, 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 the infrastructure, the, the stability economically, currency, organisationally, probably... Even Argentina, who were looking to maybe uh, throw their hat in the ring, don't believe that they're in a position where they can guarantee a lot of those elements. The United States has a lot of you know, economic and infrastructural advantages that they can call upon. That means they can actually host it um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a consequent, you know, significant way. So it's, it's beyond just the theory of, of where the game is and where the game's going. Well, it's there really are some some imperatives around infrastructure, organisation, economics, and so on that that are, that are important. On the other hand, you know there'll be risks on the US side. I don't think they're great risk. I think they will draw crowds and sell tickets and host well. But but there's always every World Cup you go into the major risk that you look at is will we sell the tickets? Will we uh, have the crowds that we require for broadcast and the economics of the of, of the game? Will the sponsors turn up? Of course they will. Will the broadcast money turn up? Of course they will in America. Um, but we need fans. We need two and a half million fans to turn up 
two million to two and a half million fans to turn up and pay good money to add to the economics of the event. Brett, Brett no, no, knowing the, the the sports market and the, and the, the the numbers involved as you as you do, is it is it is is the 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 amount of sponsorship money available across sports just a bottomless pit, or no. <laughs> um, because I'm I'm thinking in terms now. I mean I mean in, we had the thing on Sunday with the women's Euros. Now, there's a hell of a lot being spoken about the women's Euros at the moment, the success and the potential of what's going forward, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And people are talking about blue chip sponsors queuing up to get involved now. This is obviously the next big thing. Now, fine, we're, we're a few days on and, and, and the frenzy is still at its height. But that's, that, that could, if that becomes a big player in the sports rights market and sports money available is not a bottomless pit, is that a problem? For, for existing sports chasing cash? Yeah, look, it's not. It's obviously not a bottomless pit. Obviously, all sports are chasing, you know, a finite amount of, of money. And it's true. It's, will, you know, suddenly you've got, it, it's a question of timing as well. Suddenly you've got, you know, women's sport coming in to compete for those dollars to a certain extent. But they're also increasing the economics of the sport as well because they're bringing more viewers in. They're bringing more participants in. Um, so they're broadening the base. That might happen a bit slower than the, the search for new sponsors, but also new events create new sponsors as well. People, you know, brands and corporations that weren't interested in sports suddenly are sparked into interest for events like the Lionesses, for events like a World Cup in, in, in America, where before they wouldn't have looked at it. The usual suspects will have a look at it and say, does this fit into our budgets? Can we increase our budgets a bit or can we reshuffle and whatever? But new corporations seeing a change in the landscape often come out of the woodwork and say, that's absolutely perfect for us. So I think they do generate increment, but sometimes that increment doesn't happen quite as quickly as the, as the demand of, of, of those sports to have that money straight away. So, 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 so by, by those lights, how important is it, in your view, that rugby is able, and I'm thinking here of the, the player welfare issues and, um, and, and the... Um, and the legal stuff that's, you know, looming sure. on the horizon for rugby union. And of course, NFL has been through this and it's probably still a continuing uh, issue in, in, um, in American football. But how important is it for rugby in particular to be able to, in the face of what's coming at it, present the right kind of image that attracts blue chip sponsors with an awful lot of money who, want to be, who don't want to be associated with something which is seen to be fraught with issues and problems. Yeah, it, it, it's critical that they uh, do the right thing and are seen to be doing the right thing in that context. Uh, you know, the world knows these are contact sports that carry risks. It's it's their, their responsibility is to be clear on those risks and transparent about it, which is which they have been, and to do everything they can while keeping the integrity of the sport to lighten. Uh, those risks as much as they can or to, to avoid, you know, to lower the probability of, 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 of concussion and, and, and injury outcomes. And that's what they've been doing for a long time. And now they're dealing obviously with some legal issues around that, which is going to be a distraction. But the NFL doesn't have any more problems finding sponsors because okay. there have been concussion in, in, issues and so on. There'll be participation issues in the pipeline from parents who would rather their children, in some cases, didn't take risks like that. Um, you know, that, that's that's always a challenge. That's why 
these sports offer up other versions of whether it be touch, yeah. play ball in, 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 in the US case to keep players in the game and keep players attached to the sport and so on. But they have to behave responsibly and they have to evolve where they get the evidence that law change can uh, lighten the injury burden on players. But I, sponsors don't want to be associated with uh, sports that uh, don't have an audience. They don't want to be associated with sports that mismanage, uh, you know, uh, the game from a, a, a fraudulent or, 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 you know, inequality or, you know, non-diverse or, you know, some, some of these issues which are very prevalent in sponsors' minds. But I, I, I don't believe that, that injury at, at the top level of sponsorship is, 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 a, is, is a huge barrier. It's a concern and it's a responsibility for, the, for those bodies. One thing that's particularly interesting, I think, about the, the general panorama of American spectators is obviously they're fiercely patriotic about their sport. They're very proud of baseball, basketball, American football, the sports that originated from within in the States. Do you think this then creates an extra hurdle for rugby to be truly accepted? And I would argue that it's not yet truly accepted in time for 2031. Yeah, I don't think it's a patriotic thing. I think I don't think they go to baseball, America, uh, sorry, American football, and and NBA because they f- feel it's a patriotic thing. I just think that's all that they've had seen on offer, and they like it, and that's what they go to. So I don't think there's a there's a cultural rejection of an outsider sport. If it if it's spectacular, if they're introduced to it. I think you'll get a lot of conversion. I really do. We, we've seen that in sevens. It's it, you know people who discover these the, the, the sport of rugby really really get caught up in it and get captured by it and, and and Americans love the atmosphere around the sport the camaraderie in colleges it's very prevalent um, it's a very strong very strong women's sport in America uh, rugby you know it's a high growth in, in, in sport in that segment um, likely to be offering scholarships on title nine for women in the, in the, in the US etc so yeah I don't think that's a barrier I think it's visibility is the issue I think Americans don't see enough rugby don't see their team play enough on home soil and don't have the occasions like this to see top top level rugby in its best environment that's that's the opportunity and in terms of the overall I don't know how it's going to look how the vision of the tournament is obviously there's a lot that we see in the NFL for example I'm thinking mainly like the Super Bowl halftime shows and things like that. Do we think we will see elements of the NFL transposed onto a rugby field? There's no question the American public expect more than turn up, watch a game and leave. And they're conditioned to something more happening. And if they want to delight the American audiences, then sports presentation is going to be a key element of that. And again, that's not a bad thing for rugby. The purists uh, might have problems with some aspects of that in how it plays out potentially, but Generally speaking, that's the direction of travel for modern sport. The UEFA Champions League final was meant to be a, a, a Super League. As it turned out, it was a bit of a disaster on the, on the ticketing and entry front. But, but that was, the, you know, they wanted to position that as a kind of Super Bowl. I think even the Lionesses weekend, the pregame show and so on, there was various elements of, of entertainment. That is the direction of travel of modern, of modern sport. And in many ways, the American sports lead that charge. Tell you what, Brett, the players will be well rested, won't they, if Bruce Springsteen's going to play at halftime? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> One more question from me, and we've touched upon it briefly, is if the Eagles do not qualify for 2023, 
Now, how big a setback do you think would that be? And obviously, they hopefully will qualify for 2027. There's Olympic Sevens um, in 2028, I believe, which is in Los Angeles. How big a, a hurdle would that create initially um, in terms of momentum leading up to that World Cup, starting from Paris? Yeah, look, big. it would be a huge setback, not insurmountable. They'll, they'll have to regroup. In many ways, it may send a shot through their system that will create more support systems, more help, more urgency in many ways is probably the only silver lining you'd find in that. But it would be definitely be a, a, a big setback for them. You'd want to see them and they look the build up with COVID and all the rest of it. And the economics of the of, of the of the American Union has been difficult in recent years, and World Rugby have done a lot to help them on that front. So I'm not sure they they're not looking like they put in a big performance in in France in any case. But to be there and have players live it, understand it, coaches, systems, and so on, it's an important building block. Not insurmountable, but real setback if they don't get there. We, we were talking at the start, Brett, about about how. Um, American sport and certainly American football has gone out of its way to bring in equalisation to ensure that you know there's a contest everywhere that no one there's no inevitability about outcomes etc cetera, etc cetera. that's what seems to appeal to the American sporting sure. psyche as, as it would with most sporting psyches sure. we'll more than likely see some 100 point victories at the World Cup next year certainly 80 point victories I think that's like watching paint dry. I find it a turn off, and I love. No, and, and, and world rugby work world world rugby work very hard to, to avoid those blowouts. And every World Cup to date, the winning margins, average winning margins, whether it be tier ones to tier twos or just the overall, have gone down at every World Cup. So I'm not sure you'll get the eighty pointers or the or the hundred pointers. I'm not, you know I don't know if you'll get those blowouts at the next World Cup, as you say. Um, because World Rugby will ensure coaching staff, supplementary coaching staff to all of these teams that are that haven't been in World Cups for a while or at all um, will be managed the best uh, that they can be and that they're as competitive as they can be. But to the American sport in mind, Brett, 48-7 ain't great, is it? No, 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 no. And that is, that is, that is what World Rugby have to address. Yeah, that's, that's Isn't part. that also a factor? There's a lot of talk about expanding the World Cup to 24 teams that I can get the theory of that, but also you're, you're increasing the likelihood of those matches. I think 20 team format is about right. And I have done, I felt that for quite a long time. It, it'd be quite a dangerous step to go up to 24. Because it's always debated because you, again, world rugby is trying to expand the game, get more countries in, and it's great for the growth of a sport in those, in those countries. If they're in a world cup, and you're offering more chances to more countries, and it's obviously tempting from a voting point of view, and but you know, and, and from a pure development point of view, um, but you've got to have the funding and the economics that can make sure all of those teams are competitive when they get there. And it's not just competition; where there's a difference in rugby, it's actually a health danger. You know, it's a, it's, it's a player welfare issue when you've got one side scrummaging against another that is not on the same planet. And what happens if you're if you're the small if you're the minnow? You're, the temptation is to put your team out all the time you're playing the big boys they put out the second team so you get the health jeopardies even widened because exactly. that's not fresh whereas the other the other bigger team is fresh yeah i don't, I don't think that again i'm not i been in a world rugby meeting for uh, a couple of years so i don't know what the thinking is on that but we always mooted it as a possibility also for the sport to be seen to be expanding globally is a good look as well so it's tempting um you know fifa every year announce another 
God knows how many teams to yeah. come into, into a World Cup. And if you sit stationary on 20 uh, forever, it just looks like the sport is not growing as it, as, it, as it should. It's optics. But I agree, if you want the best competitive World Cup, you've got to make sure your economics allows for those teams to come in and they have to be prepared and they have to be competitive. And I'm not sure that's the case at the moment. Did you ever discuss, Brett, your time at World Rugby, the idea of a slightly condensed elite tournament, but a shadow tournament, a plate or a shield or something like that to go alongside it, where, you, where you're, that's about as far as you can go towards guaranteeing competitive games. And if you put a big at enough... At the World Cup itself? At the World Cup itself. So, so you yeah, maybe you've got a top We did discuss 16. it, but it was, it was always logistically difficult. It was, it, it's hard enough to manage 20 teams, but to keep, as the tournament goes on, you just have a kind of parallel knockout competition for a second sort of tier group. Is that what you, what you, what you said? Well, yeah, I mean, you, 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 can, you can do it in a hundred different ways, but I mean, my idea, and if, and if you were still chief executive of World Rugby, you would be getting my blueprint for this <laughs> idea with, with, with an accompanying invoice. Which, which, which I'm sure you wouldn't settle up. But it seems to me that if you if you had a 16 team elite tournament and you had a smaller tournament of say the, the the next 10, two groups of five, whatever, you knew, and you're playing that tournament effectively on the days when the elite stuff isn't being played, so you could concentrate the elite stuff around the you know, the big audience nights of Friday, Saturday, Sunday, etc. You could play these this stuff. In, 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 yeah, that in, has that has been discussed. And That's the good. winners of that would get the carrots, of course, qualification for the next. World Cup as an elite country with three years of funding and fixtures and coaching support and all the rest, all, 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 the, all the paraphernalia that goes with it. I'm that, just well, wondering if that's been, ever been an idea. No, that has been discussed a few times and a few people have moved to things like that. And, and there's always been a reversion back to the, look, it's 20 yeah. teams, it's easier. We, we, we know the drill on it. We, we're, we're, we know the crowds, what they'll be. We'll know, you know, we don't expand the numbers of hotels. There's an economics to it as well and, and broadcast space and, and whatever. I can't, I can't go to the detail of why things were rigid, but these things have always been looked at as to how you can better evolve and better involve countries who are on the periphery. Well, as you know, I was never first with the news, Brett. So. <laughs> yeah, it's not a scoop, that one, I'm afraid. But, but, but it's, it, is, it does put logistic pressures, which are not as simple as it seems. Yeah, I think with the... Um final qualifying it's a it's a tournament in november if i'm right isn't it yes yeah. it's, it's ho- ho- hong kong kenya portugal and the usa it'll be portugal be the usa it'll be the match yeah, yeah. and i don't see not, either the others getting anywhere near it that's no. not a given no no portugal good portugal uh and they played a stack of rugby recently um that that can be a very very good rugby match well oh. it's a very exciting world cup certainly and it may well be revolutionary so Brett, thank you very much for joining. I hope your meeting goes well. And yeah, good luck with the next few years with the NFL. Thank you very much. It's very therapeutic always. (laughs) (laughs) Say that in the time, Brett. (laughs) (laughs) The Rugby Paper is available in stores on Sundays, or you can get it delivered straight to your door via our digital subscription. Next week, we will review the first weekend of rugby championship action and look ahead to the rest with none other than former Wallabies captain James Horwell.